Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Certainly the conversation of the morning for us. It's been quite a year with this pandemic. Uh, I think now most people around most of the world can see a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's because of the extraordinary science coming out of the biotech and pharmaceutical industries. Uh, and the next guest is certainly right there. And we appreciate getting some time from Dr. Nubar Afayan. He is chairman and co-founder of Moderna. There's a publicly traded stock, MRNA, on the NASDAQ. Uh, Dr. Afayan is also founder and CEO of Flagship, a pioneering based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Afayan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time, uh, and we appreciate the extraordinary work coming out of Moderna. The world is certainly thankful for the good work from uh, the good folks at Moderna. Give us an update of where you are with the vaccine in terms of global uh, distribution and production. Well, first, thanks for having me and for the kind words. It has been, uh, you know, 12 months that seems like we're still frozen left in last March when we started going down this path. And uh, the progress, though, has been has been really great to witness. Uh, and with all the work downstream of distributing the vaccine, we're beginning to see the impact that we all hoped for. In terms of where we are right now, there's a lot going on across many fronts, production front. You know, we were initially... Uh, heavily focused on the U.S. production. We've now ramped up our European production in Switzerland through our partners, and that distribution is enabling us to get volumes throughout the world where we've had uh, early orders from from various countries that we've announced. Um, second, we have announced a couple of weeks ago that, we're, that we've both been testing our current uh, initial vaccine uh, that's already being deployed, but also uh, testing some vaccines that, that also have additional uh, variations to them. In one case, a variant that is designed to tackle uh, more directly the South African variant, uh, because while we don't know whether the, the, that variant will pose uh, problems long term, we want to be ready if it does. So, so our technology lends itself to a very rapid response, and we can change essentially the, the code of the, of the mRNA we use and very quickly have a, a, a slightly different immune response. We also have announced going into younger populations, 12 to 18, and just yesterday we announced starting our trial, phase two, three trial. That'll be a careful uh, trial going from 12 down to six-month-olds. Uh, we think it's very, very important that that piece of the population be protected as well because that's where much of the damage in terms of learning loss and, and school attendance has been felt and we very much want to make sure that we can also get an effective and safe vaccine there. So a lot of different activities going on. How many doses, doctor, um, do you think you can produce max this year? And how many can you produce next year? I mean, uh, what, what are the biggest headwinds and tailwinds? But what are the numbers you think you can hit? Um, you know, Moderna uh, has announced publicly that we have ramped up our production such that we think that we'll be able to get up to a billion doses this year. Uh, certainly feel comfortable with the $700 million, uh, $700 million dose numbers, but we've put in place and have made investments to enable production going up to a billion doses. That's just this year. 
I'll remind your audience that our vaccine, since it was developed first and most rapidly in the beginning, we basically decided to go after the highest dose we could we could use and, and dose twice. The reason for that was to be able to get the maximum level of protection, and that was evidenced in the efficacy numbers we saw. Uh, we are, however, as we speak, also testing other dose levels that are lower than the 1,200 microgram, particularly when it comes to the booster. We've said publicly we're testing 50 micrograms, 25 micrograms in a booster shot. And, and, the, and the reason that's important is that should that be uh, effective or even equally effective, and we just don't know until we test, then, of course, the production volume could increase by two to four times the number that I told you, simply because there would be the dose uh, levels would be uh, reduced. Uh, 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 again, we need evidence for that. Uh, but but what the numbers I just gave you were at the maximum two doses at 100 microgram. Next year, we expect those numbers, even at the baseline level, even if we just stuck to the same high dose levels, uh, we could probably increase that by another 50%, perhaps even higher than that. Uh, and, and we're working with our partners all around the world to estimate what kind of demand we will have uh, in view of all the other vaccines that also are being developed. And, and it is a global pandemic, and we're going to have to vaccinate essentially everyone, uh, ideally, or at least as many people as are willing to participate. In, and, and that's going to require multiple different producers. We'll certainly do our part. Dr. Fine, I'd love to get your thoughts on what's happening in Europe. I mean, you compare that. We have, you know, in the United States, more than 20% of the population has received at least one dose. Those numbers are much, much lower across Europe, frustrating many of the folks there. And, and recently, we've had many countries halt the AstraZeneca uh, vaccination. What is your sense of what's going on in Europe? Are, are they being too cautious with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine in Europe? Is it a political issue? You know, um, I, I can't comment on the political side, but let me just start by saying that the regulatory agencies and the health agencies in each of these countries, I believe, are well-armed to explore the facts around each of the reports, and they have to do that. And, and I think that there is a scientific way to determine the causal links of, of, of what's been observed so that we don't kind of conflate what may be correlation or, or a number of events that would happen when that many people uh, enter a program, any vaccine program. Keep in mind, these are numbers that generally we don't see, let alone in such a short period of time. Uh, maybe the flu vaccine is, the, is one of the most abundantly used ones, and they don't compare to the numbers that we're, that we're getting to. Uh, and so I think that the regulatory health agencies have to follow these things and get at the facts. In the meantime, speculation about this is completely unhelpful, and, and mm -hmm. there, it's rampant. There's a lot of expert speculation about it could be this, it could be that. And, and I just think we have to keep in mind that we're going to need multiple vaccine types in order to do the job. It's really important that we handle each of them without, in the meantime, eroding confidence. And so I think people are doing the right thing. It is up to each country to decide what they do when they're gathering the facts. But I don't think anybody should assume that when they suspend a distribution of a vaccine, that therefore means there's something wrong with it. What it means is that the process to figure that out takes a little bit of time. And in that time frame, they're choosing to be safer because they're balancing the, the, the impact of a vaccine helping avoid uh, infections with the potential risk that is perceived. And that's the decision they make. Even though you're... Even though you founded uh, the company and you're the chairman, were you impressed with the speed of development as well? I mean, 
um, you know, you astounded the likes of Bill Gates, who has a lot of <laughs> experience in, in vaccines. And um, I wonder if you can use what you found to develop other things as quickly as you did with this. Well, there's, there's a couple of ways I can answer that question. And, and, and so the answer is, as you might expect, yes and no. And here's why. First of all, you know, Moderna was founded 10 years ago for the express purpose of building a platform, the likes of which have never existed, that for the first time makes an information molecule, a code molecule, a messenger RNA, into a drug. We've never seen that before. All the drugs we use today are chemicals and proteins. They don't have the, the characteristic of an information molecule where you can change the code, get a different protein at will, recombine, use the same pieces in a slightly different way. So kind of this notion of having it be programmable, these are not things that have been available. Uh, and so speed of, of design and implementation has always been an important part of our platform. The ironic part is that it almost doesn't matter in normal times pharmaceutical development because you have to hurry up and wait, right? So you do all these things quickly, and then you have to wait for years and years of clinical testing and trials. Right. But in a pandemic, when we could test it so rapidly, actually the speed of being able to offer a solution was not surprising. What was surprising was that the subsequent steps were done so quickly, and that took a lot of coordination with NIH, with FDA, with many, many entities. And what was surprising was that the number of things that could have gone wrong along the way, very little of which we controlled once we made the actual uh, vaccine product, actually, uh, uh, let's say, um, complied or, 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 or went our way, if you will, as well as the, uh, uh, yep. Pfizer and BioNTech, so that we could get to the other end of the road. That is kind of the more gratifying, you know, you don't want to say surprising because you, of course, hope that that's the case, but it hardly ever ends up that way. Yeah. Hey, doctor, we just, you know, real quick, I'd love to get your thoughts on Rubius Therapeutics. I know you're on the board of that company, and that's had a significant cancer breakthrough. If you could briefly just kind of tell us what's going on there. Very briefly, Rubius is part of the family of companies that have emerged out of flagship pioneering, as is Moderna, with a common thread of it being based on a platform. In that case, we engineered for the first time red cells, red blood cells, that when we gave two cancer patients, alert their immune system and activate them to go after the cancer. And just this Monday, we announced preliminary data from our phase one trial that showed very clearly in solid tumors that otherwise have no immune uh, uh, responses, that suddenly with these red cells that we developed, we saw two of them show partial responses, multiple other mm -hmm. ones showing the markers of immune activation. And that's a whole new ray of hope for solid tumors uh, that we could use the body's immune system. The interesting thing is that it's the same immune system that we're deploying against, uh, with vaccines against an infection, also now being trained to go after cancer. And so different platforms will go about this in different ways, but quite encouraging preliminary information. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time again. I know you're very busy with uh, things, well, saving the world, basically. <laughs> so much respect. Dr. Nubar Afayan, thank you so much for joining us, the chairman of Moderna and also the CEO flagship. Let's focus in on rates right now. We have Ed Al Husseini, senior interest rate and currency analyst um, at Columbia Threadneedle. And Ed, we're looking at right now at 
um, rates that are all rising as investors sell off bonds. The U.S. 10-year trading at 166 right now, the 30-year at 240, almost 242. Um, what do you expect from Jerome Powell today? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting meeting. I mean, what markets are essentially pricing is is less doubt. Uh, there's less doubt around the growth outlook uh, in terms of growth improving in the course of this year and next year. There's less doubt about the uh, employment outlook uh, in terms of the Fed being able to hit the, the maximum employment bogeys uh, over the next uh, you know 12 to 18 months and, and start tapering. And there's less doubt about the Fed being able to meet its inflation mandate, um, getting inflation to overshoot, anchoring inflation expectations higher. Um, and that's moving the entire rates complex higher. And I think Powell's going to have a, a tricky communication problem here because uh, the, the forecast, the economic projections, you know, by and large are going to reflect some of these trends, particularly in, in employment and growth. Uh, I think there's a question mark around inflation. And the communication challenge is, um, how do you guide uh, Fed funds rates uh, or expectations for Fed funds rates in an environment where um, risks are starting to skew to the upside? Um, and that's, that's a difficult spot for them. Yeah. So, Ed, I mean, it, does the chairman run the risk of the market kind of moving past him? I mean, it seems like he's going to have to acknowledge what we're seeing in the marketplace today. But I know that's a, a tight uh, rope to walk. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a risk. You know, market participants like like ourselves, we're we're single cell organisms. Uh, we, uh, we we don't uh, we 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 don't parse this stuff um, uh, at the level of detail that I think the Fed expects us to. And um, you know, markets have started front running this in the course of the past you know four to five months. Uh, we've started to bring forward the hiking cycle as the outlook for for growth and inflation improved. In, in the last quarter of, 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 of 2020. Um, now, and you, you see, know, by the way, uh, by the way, Ed, you see a 75% chance that the Fed will hike at the end of 2022. So y even you're bringing it into next year. Well, that those are the odds that are in, in the swaps. So th th those are the market odds um, uh, that are currently in the price. I see that's market um, pricing, yeah. Yeah, so that's market pricing. You know, from my perspective, that's that's quite aggressive. That leaves the Fed absolutely no room for error in terms of achieving its inflation uh, targets. And uh, you know, let's let's take a step back. The Fed has not achieved them in the course of the past 25 years. Um, coming out of a recession and being able to hit these bogeys uh, within you know 12, 24 months of of a relatively deep recession uh, would would really be uh, quite extraordinary. And so the markets are pricing an exceptionally positive scenario for the Fed at the moment. All right, Ed, how about on the bond purchasing activity? What kind of messaging do you think we will hear out of uh, Chairman Powell today? I don't think we'll hear anything. Okay. Um, uh, you know, guidance for the balance sheet uh, has been anchored by, um, you know, essentially this, this, this view that they need to see substantial further progress in quotation marks. Um, around improvement in the economy, both 
in labor and, and inflation. Um, they've been exceptionally vague by, by design around this. And there's no indications that they need to adjust or that they're willing to adjust this guidance um, at this stage. You know, the threshold in my mind on that front really remains whether there's, there's a spillover from rates markets uh, into credit. Uh, if, if credit spreads start to widen, financial conditions start to tighten, particularly if that happens in a disorderly way, um, there is a really good reason uh, uh, to, I think, engage in, in, in strengthening guidance for the balance sheet or maybe increasing purchases. Um, at the moment, they've shown no appetite to, to do that. Uh, and I personally think that's, uh, that's a little bit of an error on their part. I mean, Bill Gross told Eric Schatzker in an interview yesterday that he's been shorting the 10-year um, and will continue to because he thinks the Fed is going to see a, a jump in inflation to 3 to 4-plus percent. Um, and his point was, look, if, if uh, Powell sees that for 6 to 12 months, it's going to be difficult to hold the line. Well, I'll say I'll say you know two things. Um, you know, uh, first, congratulations to Bill Gross. Uh, but two, um, all the uh, trades he told us about were winners. By the way, Ed. that's right. Um, well, so um, you know, let, let me let me give you some 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 weight to Powell's guidance. Powell has been pretty explicit in saying that inflation will likely move up this year. We have really good reasons for that to happen and to have confidence around that. And that's really base effects from last year and the economy reopening and there being some some pricing power, particularly in services. Um, He's also been very, very clear that the Fed is going to view pretty much all of the inflation developments this year as transitory. Mm. So, um, you know, the Fed seeing... Uh, you know, three to four percent prints over the next quarter in 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 headline CPI yep. uh, is not going to change their reaction function. They have pre-committed to not doing that. Right. Now, uh, markets are obviously front-running that. We have been front-running it now for the better part of of the last six months. And the question is, how much is enough? Right. Um, the All right, the ultimate test. All right. We're going to we're gonna have to leave it there because of time, but uh, we'll touch base with you again as we like to do. Ed Al-Husseini, Senior Interest Rate and Currency Analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Not only is this guy one of my favorite Bloomberg reporters, he's my mom's favorite Bloomberg reporter. <laughs> That's big. Max Abelson joins us now with a piece that he's written on Donald Trump's fortune falling to $2.3 billion. I got to say, Max, when I first read this, I thought, yeah, right, he has $2.3 billion. You know, it's really important to remember that, you know, the guy is not the, like, $10 billion worth uh, character he thinks he is. But he really is worth something. And, and that's why it's fun to work with people like Sophie Alexander and Andre Tarter uh, and, and the Bloomberg Data team because, you know, we, we use financial filings and um, loan documents and interviews with executives to, to really take an honest look. Um, and, you know, the reality is an honest look shows that the man is in trouble. But before I say another word, I just have to tell you how happy I am to hear your voice and to know that your mother uh, likes my journalism. And, you know, it, it's it's fun for me to be able to work on stories like this one. We, we really had a good time working on this. I hope, I hope people take a look because it's, it, it's, a, it's a deep story and a detailed story, but it's also really a fun one. 
Yeah, Max, what I love about the story, not just is the content and the great writing, but the use of graphics you guys had here. And it really, you break down, you know, the different buckets of his assets and, and, the, and the debt associated with that, those assets to get a sense of what's happened to the value of those assets as well as the income. One part of your story that really jumped out at me, Max, is you talk about he's got some debt coming due over the next several years. And uh, there's not a lot of support for the Trump organization uh, in the big banking circles. How do you think that might play out? It, it, is, it is just so important. Um, first of all, big shout out to the design and development team uh, that worked on, uh, on this with us. I mean, it's, you know, journalism is, is fun, but it, it's made so much more vivid. Uh, and interesting when you get to work with um, data visualization specialists like the ones we have at Bloomberg. It, it just makes it so much fun to, to be a reporter when you're surrounded with, with so much talent. And, and what they help us illustrate and bring to life and make three-dimensional is that he has a debt problem. I mean, not only does he have hundreds of millions of dollars of loans coming due, he's personally on the hook for a, for a pretty good chunk of that. And then what's really extraordinary, because look, the reality is, a lot of business people have debt coming due. A lot of business people have hundreds of millions of debt. A lot of business people even have some personally guaranteed debt. What's so unusual about Donald Trump is in the wake of the Capitol riot, you saw banks like Deutsche Bank stand up and say, we are not going to do business with you anymore. And that is not good. You do not want to have hundreds of millions of dollars of personally guaranteed debt and to have major global banks you know, holding their nose and saying, we're not going to work with you. So Donald Trump is going to rebound. And you know what? You can't discount that because Donald Trump has been in trouble before and Donald Trump has rebounded before. So no one should count this man out, no matter what they think. No one should count this man out. But if he is going to rebound, figuring out that debt is going to be really important. And so will figuring out how we can start make mon making money again in hotels. I mean, Trump said, you know, the pandemic would disappear like a miracle, and it hasn't. And that is not good for someone with so much real estate and, and someone with so many hotels. I mean, it's not just the banks that have stopped working with him, right? Um, Cushman and Wakefield, you wrote, uh, used to handle leasing for the Art Deco building downtown. Uh, they don't anymore. Uh, Steve Roth, I, I wonder, the guy who runs Vornado, he um, explored a sale of the company that runs those those buildings. Is he going to still want to work with Donald Trump? Is the PGA going to want to ever work with Donald Trump again? I mean, a lot of these other uh, parties no longer want to be associated since the, the riot. Well, you know, I think it's helpful to do what Trump sometimes doesn't do, which is to be sort of really specific and, and to take things sort of one thing at a time. So with PGA, if you're absolutely right, uh, the PGA of America, you know, um, got rid of, of a tournament next year um, that was going to be at Bedminster. The PGA Championship. But you know what? That's right. But Major. You, you know what? They, they, they had backed out of one golf tournament uh, years ago, and, and, then, and then they got back into business with them. So when it comes to golf, maybe we'll see as the years go on, maybe, maybe, maybe golf, golf will, will get, get back with him. But then, but then there's the question of what happens with his brand. You know, will, will he figure out a way of, of getting 74 million voters to become customers in a way that buoys his business, you know, that, that's a possibility. But he's going to have to figure it out because there isn't a natural path to getting 74 million people into, you know, very expensive hotels or very expensive clubs or very expensive golf courses. And then when you asked about Vornado, you know, the reality is that Vornado has not uh, thrown up their hands and said, we're going to stop being in business with Trump. But what they have said is, is that they've um, looked at putting um, these two very big towers that are a huge part of Trump's net worth, 
on the market. So one thing that, that Bloomberg readers and listeners should be on the lookout for is what happens to those Vornado Towers, one in San Francisco and one in New York. They may hold a key to the future of Trump's business. Wow, fascinating. Hey, Max, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, kudos to you and your team for putting this uh, great piece out. Max Abelson, uh, he is Bloomberg Finance reporter. Mm. Really a, a detailed look at the finances of former President Donald Trump. Again, pegging the value at something about $2.3 billion net worth. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, partially done by the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, which is rich go. One of my favorite functions, Matt. I actually got to say, you know, I, I love scrolling through Max's ticker. I remember about six years ago, he did a story on an undocumented woman from Mexico who made it all the way through, jumped every hoop and became a star employee at Goldman Sachs. Yep. And it's just uh, written so well and researched so well. Yep. Um, it's just it's really touching work. And, yeah, and then, so of course, the- these fun pieces like the one he's written on Trump. You can check that out on Bloomberg.com. All right, we are going to talk about something pretty exciting for <laughs> from my point of view, from your point of view as well, um, yep. Paul. You're a car guy, so um, we got Chris Bryant coming on. He's one of my favorite opinion columnists, and he writes a lot about cars. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's go to Chris uh, right now. Hey, Chris, uh, Chris Bryant. He is a columnist covering industrial companies for Bloomberg uh, Opinion. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about. The news coming out of Germany, Volkswagen is the latest of the traditional auto companies to really put their chips in the middle of the table on EVs. Tell us what's going on there. Chips. <laughs> well, uh, hi, guys. And, and, and long story short, it, it's, you know, Volkswagen to the moon. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. Uh, remember, this is, you know, one of Germany's most established and important industrial companies. And its share price has pretty much done nothing over the last decade or so, uh, and suddenly, uh, you know, just this year, and in particular in the last few days, it's been off to the races. And uh, so far this year, the stock now up um, 50% or so, uh, billions and billions of, of market cap added um, after Herbert Dies, the CEO, announced some pretty exciting electric vehicle plans, really taking the battle to uh, Tesla. And I was writing today as well, also sort of copying some of the, the, the ways that um, Musk has managed to attract excitement for his own company. And what you've seen, as I say, is, is, is Volkswagen off to the races now and, and Tesla suffering mm. a bit, uh, a real reversal of, of the trend we've seen over the past year or so. I spoke to Herbert Deese as well. No big deal. We talk sometimes. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> You know, the interesting thing is I I asked him, does it make sense that you're only worth one hundred and thirty billion only uh, and, and and Tesla is worth six hundred and sixty billion dollars in market cap? I mean, Tesla only sold um, half a million cars last year and Volkswagen's going to sell a million EVs this year among the I don't know how many 10, 12 million cars they sell in total. So um, but the question I had, Chris. Do you think that Volkswagen's market cap rises to that of Tesla, or does Tesla's market cap just need to come down? Oh, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be a wealthier man than I am. (laughs) I bet you have. Um, I bet you have a view, though, right? I mean, is is uh, a car maker really going to be worth that much? Where are the margins coming from? I think you know what's been remarkable after the last few years is that Volkswagen, as you say, hugely, you know. Massive company, huge revenues, big profits, cash flows, and, and is valued at about nine times earnings. 
And yet you have a company like Tesla, uh, which in all fairness, company has really you know, great technology, really fast growing, not a lot of profit and, and, and valued a totally different multiple. And, and this divergence has existed for a long time. And, and I think people who, who bought shares in the established European car makers kind of assumed that it would never change. And that's the exciting thing that's happened over the last few days. But really, we have seen a change now. And even you've got some retail buying of Volkswagen stock out of the United States, which might be uh, influencing the um, the outperformance of the ordinary shares. A bit complicated, but uh, analysts do think that actually some retail buying is going on here. And that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Um, you know, Reddit-type uh, you know, amateur <laughs> investors in the United States buying Volkswagen shares? I mean, who'd have thought it, but it's happening. <laughs> Maybe Kathy Wood. Uh, actually, there's a little um, ETF that follows the same formula as ARK called Moon. Right. What's it called? M- it's called Moon, M O O N, right? Because the Wall Street bets guys like to the moon, and actually, it's yeah. outperformed Arc by ten times this year. Wow! Hey, Chris, what's the? Uh, I guess what a lot of these uh, traditional auto companies are trying to gauge and have been trying to gauge is just how big is the demand for electric vehicles. Well, give us your sense of what you're hearing and seeing in Europe. Well, obviously, in, in Europe, the market has really taken off over the past year, and that's partly because you've had governments, you know, sort of demanding that it happen and offering incentives and so forth. And you've seen that, you know, the market respond. And, and, and for a long time, there was a perception, I think, in the investment world that Tesla was the only game in town. But what we've seen is the European car makers really come out uh, with a lot of models recently in order to meet their regulatory compliance obligations in terms of emissions. And, and, and as such, you know, Tesla really wasn't, you know, number one in, in Europe last year. I think Volkswagen Group as a whole was the, the, the biggest. And, and now expects, uh, I think, you know, analysts are saying within a couple of years will probably be the biggest globally. And, and, and that shouldn't really surprise you. I mean, it's a company that sells 10 million vehicles a year. It's said that, you know, half of those are going to be uh, electric by 2030. And if that's the case, and with the kind of muscle and, and financial power that this company has, then then really, you know, they should be a competitor to Tesla. Uh, the problem has always been that they were a little bit, you know, preoccupied with themselves, a little bit too caught up with their government's problems. And for a long time, you know, didn't really take electric vehicles seriously. And, and now they are, they're putting their financial uh, muscle behind it. And, and frankly, you know, it's quite impressive what they're promising in terms of battery factories and models over the next few years. Chris, if you, your long-lost uncle dies, leaves you 50 grand right now, and you need a car, <laughs> would you buy a 100% electric vehicle, or, or um, would you buy a, a, a hybrid? What do you think? Very difficult question. You know, I, I think I'll be in the market for a car over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, right now, I live in an apartment building, so recharging it's going to be an issue, and that was something that Volkswagen <laughs> was talking about yesterday, yeah. too. Uh, yeah, we really need an expansion of the public charging network, and it's hoping to do that. All right, that's Chris. problem. Yep, absolutely. Chris Bryant, columnist covering industrial companies for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all of his work and that of all of our good folks at Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the Bloomberg terminal by typing in O-P-I-N, go. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.